Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and it just takes three easy steps. Go to mercurymile.com, enter your preferences, your sizes, and you will get a box of curated goodies sent to you by your personal stylist. You can keep what you love, you send back what you don't. It's extremely affordable, and you can save 10 bucks by using code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout. I see this past week, I think three or four people messaged me that they did Mercury Mile for the first time, and they're loving it. And um, this is this is 100% true. <laughs> I'm not gonna. It sounds like I'm just like reading an ad right now, but I actually got three messages in the last, I think, 24 hours. Um, people who really got into it. This episode is also brought to you by Lowell Running. Lowell Running is athlete-focused, coach-driven, and science-based. Lowell Running Company helps individuals of all ability levels reach their maximum potential in distance running through online coaching and mentorship. I joined their coaching staff uh, last month, and they just really know what they're doing. Uh, Ruben Sansa, who started it, is an Olympic marathoner. He's fantastic. They're just doing great stuff over there, and I cannot speak highly enough about the rest of the coaches on staff. If you don't trust me to be your coach, and I certainly hope you do, you can definitely trust everyone else to be on that on that staff to be your coach because they really know what they're doing. And you can check them out at lowellrunning.com. That's L-O-W-E-L-L running.com. So... This episode is with Christy Ashwanden. Christy is a very strong endurance athlete. She's done a lot in her life from an endurance athlete perspective. But this episode was not about her athletic ability. She is also a fantastic writer. And she recently wrote a book, and it was actually uh, released two days ago. It's called Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. So... If you have spent any time in athletics, you have been just inundated with just kind of like the the standard operating procedure when it comes to recovery that often gets perpetuated in the media or gets thrown out there from people who may not be as wise to the scientific facts and some of the just some of the ways that we can recover in the various areas of our life from athletics performance. And Christy just takes a deep dive into so many aspects of recovery science and recovery culture. And she does it in a way in this book, which is extremely digestible. So she is you know, really good with the science, but she presents it in a way where it's very anecdotal. And it allows you to really t- grasp exactly what she's saying. It's such a, f- a quick read. I mean, for, for a, something that's based in science, I read this book so quickly, which is really saying something because, first of all, I am not a fast reader. Second of all, when I read a book, I basically have ADHD. I, you know, after like 20 pages, I'm like looking for anything else to do. But that just wasn't the case with this book. So it's around 270 pages, and then there's a big index because she cites so many studies. It just... It's remarkable. It's a remarkable book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. We're going to touch on some of the topics in this podcast. She had to run uh, right near the end, so we weren't able to talk for quite as long as my normal podcast. Usually these go about an hour. This is a slightly less, but there's such, there's such good stuff in here that 
I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Um, I just tried to touch on some of the uh, some of the biggest topics that pertain to my audience. So you know the the amateur runner set, but there's a lot more in there that we touch on. So please check this book out. Again, it's Christy Ashwanden. Good to go, and I hope you like this episode. Hello, Christy, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. So great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure. And let me tell you, I'm so excited to chat about your book that's going to be coming out soon. It will probably come out the same week we, we, uh, we put this podcast out. Good to go. The athletes and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. And I got to be honest with you. I didn't know that recovery was a strange science until I started reading this book, but holy cow, you really nailed it with that subtitle. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was uh, a difficult book to title, sort of. Um, we had good to go from the, the beginning. Deciding on the subtitle took a lot of back and forth. Yeah, I can imagine. And this is so, it's just chock full of good stuff. It was, um, it was such a fun thing reading it because just how you set up the chapters of like, this is how, you know, how a you know, recovery modality or theory came into being. And then just the, the back and forth nature of how well or not well it actually does. Uh-huh. <laughs> it really is fascinating. And I can't wait to dive into some of these because so many of them are important for runners. And, um, and we won't even be able to touch all of them, nor would I want to, because I want people to go read the book anyway. <laughs> but before we do so... I'd love to just talk about your own athletic background as just the foundation from where from where you were coming from in terms of why you wanted to do this book in the first place. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been an athlete since well, I was 13 years old, I guess, but it was more than a few years ago. Uh, I was a runner in high school. I started off on the cross country team, uh, fell in love instantly with running. Um, was state champion in the 1600 meters, ran cross country. Um, and then in college, I went to University of Colorado and ran for CU. But I, um, in the middle, toward the end of my first year, uh, developed a, a running injury. It was actually in a car accident. Anyway, it's a long story. But I got injured. So I ended up having to quit running for a while. And I joined the cycling team at that point and also started cross country skiing. And so I was a cyclist on the CU cycling team. And after college, I bike raced pretty seriously for a while. Um, and then I went to grad school. And then I decided, I had, in the meantime, had to really fall in love with cross-country skiing. And so I did that. And um, was on a, a sort of a pro team, the Rossignol team. And so I raced cross-country skiing all across North America and also in Europe uh, for a few years. And yeah. In the meantime, I also, well, somewhere in there, I, I went back to running. Um, I guess it was about the time I started skiing. And so I've done a, a lot of trail running. I live in Colorado, and so I'm a really avid trail runner. I've done tons of racing over the years of, of trail runs. At this point, I'm mostly just doing stuff for fun. I, I race here and there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So you've been basically doing aerobic endurance sports for a long long time which is a great spot for you to test different recovery modalities because if for no other reason you're exactly the demographic that these have been marketed to yeah absolutely um you know this is really it's so interesting because you know back when i was an elite athlete recovery was really something that you it was sort of all the things you weren't doing 
it was lying on the couch, it was putting your feet up, you know, not staying up late, socializing with your friends, it was, you know, going to bed early and all of that. But somewhere in the meantime, recovery has become a thing that people do. Um, you know, there are all these gadgets that you need to use and all of these rituals like um, ice baths and rolling, foam rolling has become really popular. And that wasn't really a thing, I think, back when I was running more, more seriously. Um, ice baths have been a long, around for a long time. But, but I think what's really changed is just, you know, on the one hand, there's been a very important um, shift in emphasis in recovery. Um, you know, I, I think there was a time when everyone was just thinking so much about training, training, training. How do you do more? You know, and there's this idea that, you know, the way to get better is to train more to a point only benefit from your training to the extent that you're recovering from it and and so I think it's a really good thing that recovery is now sort of getting a lot more attention and focus for people because that's really where you make the adaptations and that's really where you get better I think you know it's also kind of gotten to the point where it's become a thing that you're doing where it's almost your second workout you know your foam rolling and you know you're using this gadget or that gadget and it can you know some cases take longer than the training itself yeah, and what you just said is, I think, hits, hits like right to the heart of it, of in order to be you the best athlete you need to be, you need to recover well. Yeah. Which is why these recovery, again, just the, the art of recovery or the verb of, you know, I am recovering becomes such a, an easy thing to, to glob onto because it's not nearly as hard as training. So if someone says, hey, training and recovery are equally important, well, if one feels better than the other, which one do you think you're going to you know, spend more time you know, thinking about or maybe putting more, more money into, especially if you're told that they're equally important? Right, right. And I think there's really been um, this sense, too, that everyone is really important. You see, I mean, if you look on any of these social media platforms, I think Instagram's a good example of this. If you go on Instagram and look at, you know, top athletes, they're constantly sharing photos of them, you know, in the squeezy pants or in the ice bath, they're doing all of these things. And I think that really creates this sense of like, oh, this is what it takes and everyone's doing it and I don't want to miss out. Right. And the other part too, is that you have, and you put it really well, that a lot of the the studies and ideas behind a lot of the recovery devices and nutrition and, and the like, a lot of these are kind of good ideas taken too far from a marketing standpoint and really put into place where there, there may have been studies that promoted certain things. And while they you know, may have been useful, we've kind of in certain ways had this fad nature where you've taken these certain elements and just really run wild and sometimes roughshod over the terrain with some of the ideas. Yeah, that's right. And I think one, one important thing that I learned while reporting this book and researching it is that a lot of the science that's held up to support this stuff isn't really, um, you know, some of it is just marketing, to be honest. Um, you know, they're looking for some sort of scientific justification to sell the product. And this is not to say, um, look, I love science. I'm a science geek. It's the best way we have of understanding the world and seeking truth and all of that. But it's also a really difficult enterprise. And it's pretty easy to set up studies that will show you what, what you want them to show you. And so, you know, when you are looking at a product and it says, you know, found in a study to do X, Y, and Z, 
that's a time to be really suspicious. You know, I want to see it published in a scientific journal. I want to see that it's been peer reviewed and, and assessed. And I want to look at the methodology and all of that. But there's a lot of uh, sort of scientific marketing, I would say, that goes on where they're really sort of using science as a veneer of legitimacy for some of these things. And this is exactly why we need this book, Christy, because not all of us are reading scientific journals to take deep dives into what is and is not effective. And just sometimes the idea that science is behind it, if it's something that we're already positively predisposed to liking, it really can just, you know, attract us in a way that will um, have a certain effect. So you talk about good science and bad science in the beginning of this book and use your own scientific study as kind of like a, an anecdotal way of showing the positive and negative, um, you know, ways that science can be done and some of the effects that it has. And I thought it was really useful instead of being, you know, kind of like a dry diatribe about the scientific method, not only was it not dry, literally, because you did a study about is beer a good recovery drink? <laughs> right. And I thought that was fantastic. And just not just to, to go through the, 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 the X's and O's of what that study was all about, but why did you choose to kind of use that as the foundation of good science or bad science or the difference between the two? in the beginning of the book? Well, you know, I wanted to start with the most important questions first, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I thought, um, you know, it's really difficult. The, some of these things are really sort of wonky and hard to wrap your head around. And so I realized that the only way to really explain um, how, you know, well, and, and I'm talking here about well-meaning science and well-meaning, you know, uh, studies that are done by well-meaning scientists that have the best intentions and are really trying to answer a question. Yeah, you know, I wanted to show how those can go astray or sort of lead you to the wrong answer or produce produce uh, findings that might be really enticing but might not hold up to further scrutiny or that might not be reproducible. Um, and so, I decided to use this particular study because that had really gotten me thinking about a lot of these issues. And so just, just really briefly, I should explain what I'm talking about, which is we did a study. I, I uh, got together with some local researchers at my, my local university, Colorado Mesa University. Um, they have a fantastic exercise lab there, um, some really great folks. And so we put together a study to look at this question. And the question was, you know, if you go to the beer tent after your race and have a beer or, you know, kick back, and you know, drink a beer with some friends after your training run. I know that um, my training club is not the only one that does this. This is a pretty common thing around, around runners uh, that we like to have a beer after running. And so my question was really like, this is really fun, it's enjoyable, but is it harming our recovery? And so um, we put together a study to try and look at this. And immediately I run into problems um, and realize that this is going to be a lot harder than I thought, because the very first thing you have to ask is, well, what do you mean by recovery? Um, yeah, and that's not a very, it's, and that's actually a much harder question to answer than you might think. Yeah, exactly. And even if you are able to answer correctly, it's by definition subjective. Right. Yeah, so recovery is a subjective thing, um, and so it's hard. It's something that's hard to measure. We do not have one particular thing. That's just a, a number that you can measure that will tell you whether you're recovered or not. And so you have to make decisions about how you're going to measure this, and those choices that you make will will determine and influence the outcome of the results that you get. And so 
answer that you get from a study is really only as good as the assumptions that you've made and the measures that you've taken and the way that you've done that. And so you can end up with a study that provides an answer that isn't really answering your real question because you're measuring something that isn't a good proxy for it, or you're measuring something um, that really isn't actually the thing that you care about. And it can be hard to know that um, until you've, you've done some of this stuff. Right. And two other things that you mentioned or not, not that you said explicitly, but it comes up again and again in the book is the, the problem with, and sometimes you can't get around it, is the problem with small sample sizes and um, either lack of or kind of, you know, poor placebos yeah. to, set up, to set up the study. Whereas for you guys, you're doing like the alcoholic versus non-alcoholic beer, which is hysterical. You had like O'Doul's and like this really good beer. And it's like, I'm pretty sure... They can figure out which one they were having. Right. And then, and then secondly, as you mentioned, like you have these small sample sizes, even if you do everything perfectly, you know, like you mentioned in the, in the, in the book, you had one person who just quit the run early on one of his, on one of his like hard workouts because he had to take his daughter to school or something. <laughs> like yeah. that in and of itself was going to swing the data because you only had like five other males that you were comparing them to. Yeah, that's right. And this is almost a universal problem in sports science studies is that the sample sizes are really small. And, and there are good reasons for this. You know, it's not just that these scientists are like sloppy, and they don't know better, or don't don't want to do good science. But it's just really hard. Um, it can be hard to recruit enough people. If you're studying elite athletes, in particular, there may not be enough of them around to even study. And then you're potentially asking them to do weird things and, and veer off their planned training schedule to be part of your study. So, you know, there are legitimate reasons why it's hard to get large sample sizes. But the problem is that, you know, it's like trying to get blood from a stone. Um, it doesn't matter what your reasons for having a small sample size are, but having that small sample size means that the answer you get is going to be far less reliable than it would be in a bigger study. And, you know, you just can't be sure that that sample that you have is representative and that the things that happened in those five people you know, are really going to represent other other runners and other people in that situation. Right. And I thought a great way of looking at just how, how science or how a study can be formatted in a way that's going to produce certain results was one of the Gatorade tests yeah. or Gatorade-like tests where they had the athletes basically fast for 12 hours and then one group was given you know, a Gatorade like drink. And then another group was given water and the person who reviewed it years later was like, well, yeah, shoot, dude, if you give someone sugar yeah. <laughs> like, after 12 hours of fasting and the group, no sugar, like, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that goes back to like, are you really measuring the thing that the thing that you're trying to measure or the thing that you think that you're measuring? And very often the answer is no. And sometimes, you know, it, it takes sort of looking retrospectively or thinking it through to realize that. So it, it's, yeah, it's tricky. Like, I think, I hope that one message that will come through for people who read my book is that science is actually really hard. And it's something, you know, we have this idea that science is like this magic wand, and it just t turns everything it touches into truth. But it's actually, um, I had one researcher tell me something once, I think just really hits it on the, on the head. And that is, science is not an answer, it's a process. And it's a process of uncertainty reduction. So, you know, you have an idea and you interrogate it and you try different things to kind of see, does it hold up in this situation? Does it hold up in that situation? Is it true if we do this? Is it true if we do that? And so, 
you know, there's no single study that's going to give you the absolute final answer. And part of having a scientific mindset is being open to new evidence when it comes. And so that's the other thing that I think is really important. Um, I kind of describe in the book different fads or different different waves of thinking about things that were, you know, at the time, maybe the best science that we had and seemed reasonable, but then were later sort of overturned by more research. And that's not science failing. That's how science works and how it should work. And that is, you know, that it's it's always open to new findings and that it's it's always sort of trying to get a better answer and to reduce that uncertainty because, you know, there's always going to be uncertainty with any study. Right. And getting the better answer oftentimes comes down to asking the better question. Right. Which, which, which is one thing that you mentioned early on where you say the foundation question shouldn't necessarily be, does this work? It's how do we know that this is working? Yeah. So it's really important to, to think about, you know, if you're looking at a product or, or a thing and saying, okay, I want to know if this works, but the first question that you should ask in looking at this is what would it look like to be working? Like, what does it mean to work? What are my expectations here? And for a lot of recovery things, you know, the answer could just be, it makes me feel better. Like that could be a legitimate answer. And that could, that could actually represent, yes, this thing is working. It's making me feel better. It's making me feel more rested. It's making me feel more recuperated. And that's something that is just as legitimate an answer as, you know, the lactate level in my blood changed this much or, you know, some sort of physiological measurement that you could take. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, um, you know, that, that in some cases, I think um, things that people really cling to and really love um, don't have a lot of, of what we might consider hard scientific evidence where they've measured something and found, you know, these tangible numbers that you can look at but they are things that make people feel so much more relaxed and they, they feel good. And that in and of itself, I think, is a legitimate um, answer to, yes, it is working if it's doing that. Right. And even if it's just the placebo effect, there's going to be a benefit there. And you almost don't want to mess with it if someone believes it works. And that belief in and of itself makes it work for them. It's kind of like, hey, man, just keep it going. You know, who am I to tell you any different? But it also brings up the question of, are you measuring the right thing? And I think, right. of the, and I think back to the studies, uh, again, of the, the, the Gatorade one where it was Ambie Burfoot that you mentioned mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah. And so Ambie has, has the study where he's, he's, um, they're, they're measuring, you know, how much weight he's losing, his core body temperature, how much salt he's losing, all of this stuff. And they're measuring these things as if this is going to be indicative of performance with the one caveat being they were never measuring his performance. Right, <laughs> and, then they, right. and then they have this, then they, then they guess how well he's going to do in the Boston marathon. They assume he's going to do the worst out of all the athletes they tested because of his lack of hydration and all right. this other stuff. And what does he do? He wins. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that study is a really great example of this. So, you know, they're measuring body temperature and these physiological measures. And so the more hydrated the runners were, and in particular, you know, in this case, I talked to Ambi at length about his experience in the study and, and, you know, yeah, his body temperature uh, didn't, didn't rise as much when he was drinking more water in this study, but it also felt terrible. He said it was miserable. He felt like he had an ocean in his stomach. You know, he was really not feeling great. Um, they weren't really they weren't really measuring performance here. You know, half they had him on a treadmill where he was at a speed, um, as I, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, yeah, yeah, it was but, like two it, hours at seventy percent aerobic rate, which for him was like six minute mile pace. I think is what you wrote. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was something like that. And so, yeah, but he felt terrible. So it's like, well, you could say, oh, this is so much better. His body temperature was different. But it's like, okay, but does that mean like, we want to know how well he's going to do in the race? Like, you know, the, the, ra- the Boston Marathon is not one on body temperature or, you know, body weight <laughs> even, you know, body, you know, uh, fluid loss rates, right? It's like- If anything, it's the opposite. Know. Like, because right. you show that like the elites who win usually lose the most body weight. Yeah, that, that is a finding that, ha- that has been found several times. Um, you know, I don't know about this latest two hour, or this latest two hour. I don't know about this latest marathon record, but the world record before that, um, the guy who said it lost something like 10%. Was it 10% of his body weight? I'm sorry, this is in the book and I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was, it was 10%. You're exactly yeah, right. yeah. And so, yeah, by these standards, these hydration standards, it's like, oh my God, this is dangerous. You're you're, you know, critically losing too much fluid, but it's like, yeah, the guy just set the world record, like, you know, and he, I don't think he collapsed at the finish line. So was not hospitalized afterwards. So, you know, it's a a good example of sort of measuring the wrong thing and paying attention to the wrong thing and, and not um, kind of honing down on what it is that really matters. Right. So getting into recovery specifically, Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that inflammation is bad, right? <laughs> right. That's what we've always thought, right? We've been told it's terrible. And um, look, you go out and sprain your ankle and it's, uh, you know, swelling up to a bowling ball, like that's probably bad. And you do want that to go away at some point so that, you know, you can move it and all of that. But this idea that inflammation is the enemy is really kind of misguided because inflammation and inflammatory process is actually how your body repairs itself. This is how you make gains from hard training. Um, It's these inflammatory molecules and this whole system of inflammation that goes in and fixes the damage that you've done and sort of makes your muscles stronger, you know, and, and helps you to get better. So if you, if you tamp down inflammation, you could actually um, reduce your training effect. You could end up benefiting less from your training. And this is something that has been shown in numerous studies looking at the effects of anti-inflammatories um, and different techniques for reducing inflammation. And I love one of the analogies in your book. I don't know if it was you or one of the people you interviewed. I, pardon me, I, I, I'm forgetting uh-huh. in the moment, but it was like this, like, this visual of visual of inflammation being like this set of like, like this like team of like good guys and good girls going in and like cleaning up the muscles, <laughs> like yeah. repairing them. Um, and being like, if you're, if you're telling them to like get lost, like who's that helping? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, you want these things to, to go in. you want this process to, to happen. That's how you get better. That's how your muscles repair themselves. And so it's sort of, you know, training is almost, it's like breaking your body down and then recovery is building it back up. And inflammation is a part of that building it back up. Process, and it's a really important part of it. And this is the reason that I, this is one of the many reasons why I loved your book so much, because you didn't just leave it there. You then, you know, really go in and take a, a, a harder look at it. Like there is a time and a place where you might want to you know, alleviate inflammation. You just mentioned one, like if your, if your knee is the size of a bowling ball, you know, having ice on it probably isn't the worst thing in the world. And if like, say you're doing like back to back hard sessions in the same day and you have two hours and you want to just like maybe alleviate some inflammation because you know, you have to get right back at it. Like that, there's, a, that's probably a good example of, of trying to minimize inflammation as opposed to someone who's doing the traditional, 
you know, two hard workouts in a week type plan. So the latest thinking on recovery, it's pretty exciting, but I want to just, just caution that, you know, this is kind of the, the latest, greatest, and it's subject to new studies and, you know, our thinking may evolve over time, but right now there's a lot of interest doing uh, recovery, being sort of a periodized approach to recovery in the same way that people do periodized training plans so that you have sort of a preseason where you're doing a lot of hard training um, and then you have in, in the season, you're, you're training differently to stay sharp for the races. So recovery would be the same, same way. And so the idea is when you're in that building phase and the base phase and these, these points where you're doing a lot of really hard training, where the goal at that point is really to like force super compensation to get better, to improve your endurance, get stronger and all of that. And, and you're not racing right away, racing as much. Um, that there you would really focus on making sure that you're making these, uh, you be really sure that you are, you know, letting that inflammatory process go. You want all of that. You want all the repair recovery that you can get. Um, but then when you're in the season or even like in a competition, so an example would be a track meet where you are having heat. So if you're having to, you know, maybe you're doing a preliminary on a Friday night and then Saturday there's the final. Um, so you're going to have to perform, you know, close together or even on the same day um, there that inflammation you're not going to make in between those two heats you're not going to make adaptations that are going to help you in the second race so what you really want to do is just feel better and have your muscles be feeling better and so there the inflammation is not going to really help you at that point and so that might be a point where something like an ice bath um, could be helpful whereas at training camp ice baths are probably not what you want to do it's not not going to help it could actually um, reduce some of the inflammatory it could actually reduce some of the process that you actually really want during during training camp you want to get all of the benefits you can and all the repair that you can yeah exactly that makes a lot of sense and you talk about three different really focus on three different um recovery tools or mechanisms when it comes to anti-inflammation you talk about ice which has been around forever it feels like and then you Mm -hmm. talk about the 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 cryogenic you mm-hmm. know, barrels, which are yeah. all the rage, you yeah. know, and, and actually made for selfies. Uh, and I know people who, who right. use them and are in like them. And you talk about it, you have a very, uh, you know, I love your, the way you talk about it because you really see both sides of it in your own personal anecdote and then compression as well. Yeah. And I think compression, if we could just focus on that because that not only is probably more ubiquitous, but also much more cost effective for a lot of people and something that probably has a lot of uses. Like, let me put it this way. I use compression socks, but mm-hmm. I don't use them for anti-inflammation. I use them basically as a way of like staying warm, but I don't feel like rocking tights because it's 20 degrees. If I say it's 30 degrees, I'll wear compression socks and, mm-hmm. and like shorts when I go out for a run. So like for me, that's my use of compression socks. But taking that out, um, and I'm not even sure why I included that in, but <laughs> taking that out, let's talk about compression socks from yeah. an anti-inflammation perspective, because they are, they seem to be everywhere. Yeah, they are. And there's, there are a lot of claims made about compression. Um, a lot of them aren't really, uh, don't really hold up to scientific scrutiny. But one thing I'll say about compression is that it actually feels really good. And there's a benefit, there's an inherent benefit in just feeling good and feeling better. Like that is not something to be dismissed. And I don't want to say like, I am not recommending that people go out and, you know, if people are telling you to buy these expensive things that don't really have any evidence behind them, like just to do it for that. But if you are looking for recovery help and looking for something that can enhance your recovery, 
I would just say that if there's something that makes you feel better, so those um, pneumatic compression uh, boots are a really good example. Like the Normatex are like one of the most popular brands. These things feel fantastic. They feel great. There's not a ton of evidence that they're really doing much. I mean, they're maybe they're increasing circulation. What really increases circulation? Exercise. <laughs> like you can walk around the block and you'll you will increase your circulation as much as any of these gaps. So you really don't need one of those. You know, you can just do a warm down. Um, compression feels really good. But the other thing that it does is, you, if you're sitting there with your feet up in these these boots, getting getting the massage, you're not doing anything else at that point. Like you are relaxing. By definitions, you can't be running around doing something else. Um, it's making you feel pretty good. So that's probably helping you relax a little bit. Even if you're, you know, say on your phone, doing something stressful with work, you're going to feel more, more relaxed than you would if you were standing up or doing something else. So I think that um, those benefits um, are real. And so we can say that, well, they're not, it's not very scientific. We don't think that this works. And that's true. But it's also true that it feels good and it helps people take some time out of their day to sit still and that in and of itself. I mean, so what is recovery? It's really just rest and relaxation. And so I think the thing that's really interesting is that we are at a time where people feel like they need to go and buy gadgets or apps or, you know, different things in order to just do, you know, which is something that's as simple as like lying on the couch, putting your feet up, reading a book. Um, you know, something like that. So, you know, if your preference is that you want to buy something or use something else, that's fine, but it isn't necessary. Right. And one a big thing that you talk about in this book is sleep and stress. And mm-hmm. I don't want to dive into that right now because I know we, 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 we are have a time limit here. And I do want to just stress, I've dealt with my own sleep stuff. So anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows, <laughs> knows my feeling on sleep. And, you know, I definitely would suggest people look into this um, in this, no, this no, those chapters of this book, because I think it is important. But I do want to touch on one more thing before you have to get going, because it also is just like compression sucks. It seems to be a hallmark of recovery and something that no matter how much money someone has is kind of a staple of a lot of people's thinking for good, bad, or neutral. And that is nutrition timing mm-hmm. in terms of what to eat and when to eat it to best aid recovery. Yeah. Yeah. This is really interesting. So back when I was a bike racer and then um, we really, at that point in early two thousands, I guess, there was the hot thing there was this thing called nutrient timing and there was this recovery window. And as soon as you finished exercising, the idea was you had like 30 or 40 minutes where it was really crucial that you get some calories in. And this is when, you know, your muscles were just hungry for fuel. And and if you could refuel at that time, um, you'd recover so much better and be ready for the next bout of exercise. And so this, this is a really appealing idea and it, it sort of makes intuitive sense, right? That you, you would really, your muscles would be, um, really like a sponge after exercise, ready to take up these nutrients. But yeah, you know, after doing further testing, it turned out that some of the findings were probably not as robust as they seemed. And it turns out that unless you are going in like in between heats at a track meet, or um, you, you're really going to perform again within hours, like on the same day, then that timing really isn't so important. Your body's going to recover. It's going to replenish those glycogen stores. It's going to recover as long as you have a regular meal um, at some time. It doesn't have to be within this tiny little window. And it turns out that it's not, you know, the benefit is just that, okay, so 
fuel is replenished. It's almost like if you go out on a long drive in your car and you deplete the, the gas tank, well, yeah, your gas tank's really ready to receive fuel, but like you don't really need that fuel till you're going to go out and drive again. And so you could say, okay, I just, I just emptied the tank. I got to go fill it up right now. But you know, whether you do that, that moment, or if you do drive, you're going to be okay. And your muscles are sort of the same way. This, this idea of the nutrient timing and this, this window of opportunity. I had one researcher say, you know, it's not really a window. It's more like a barn door. You know, you have, hours to to do this it's not um just a few minutes yeah and one of the central themes in this book seems to be your body is you know way more adaptable than you may think it is and you don't have to get every possible detail right in fact doing so will probably be you know detrimental to you because you probably make yourself stressed out you know in the process of doing it you know you, you know besides getting a lot of sleep like yeah. a lot of this stuff can kind of work itself out if you're just finely tuned to your body and you take some time to really understand what your body needs in the moment and just kind of like settle yourself down. Yeah. I mean, you just, you really just hit the nail on the head as far as the overall theme and sort of takeaway from my book. And that is really sophisticated machines and they've adapted. We've evolved to be able to handle different environmental situations um, you know, to, to go a little while without eating, like, you know, our, our ancestors weren't walking around with water bottles and energy bars, you know, <laughs> they made, they made do and your body is capable of doing this. And so we've sort of been, I mean, so much of this is marketing, but we've really been sort of fed this idea that, you know, our, our bodies are in this really delicate balance and you really just have to do everything right to, to keep everything optimal. But the, the truth is that this optimal state is much sort of wider and has a lot more range in it than we've been led to believe. Like you don't have to get everything absolutely perfect. Your body's going to be okay. And it's really the basics like sleep um, that are going to make a huge difference. And so, you know, if you're someone who's skimping on sleep and then spending a bunch of money on special drinks and gadgets and things, you really just have your, you know, it's, it's really the wrong approach. Um, the top 10 things for recovery are sleep, 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 right? Like there's nothing else that even comes close. So it's just so important to get the basics. Right. Like food and water and things like that, you know, electrolytes, all that are important. But like you mentioned before, like, you know, it it doesn't necessarily have to take the time or the money that we are led to believe in order to get it right. And it seems like the most important recovery tool is self-awareness. That's absolutely right. And I just say the most important thing that an athlete can do and the most important skill an athlete can develop is the ability to read your own body and to understand the clues that it's sending you and to you know, feel like this is what it feels like when I'm thirsty. This is what it feels like to be hungry. Yeah, this is what it feels like to be sleepy. Um, this is what it feels like when I've been training too much and I'm too tired. This is how it feels like when I'm not adapting to my training and I need more Exactly. All right. Everyone knows how to buy and get a book. I'm not going to ask you like, hey, where can people find your book? Everyone knows how to do that. So, your, lo- your local bookseller is a great place to buy a book, but you can get it yes. at all the usual places. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, people who listen to this, obviously listen to other things. Is there a plan to do an audiobook? book? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, actually. Okay. Um, I'd be happy to narrate it for you, Christy, if you're looking around. <laughs> but um, last thing, I know you got to get going, is 
you, know, you um, have a very dedicated writing career. You, you do a lot of things. Um, so where can people find just your daily, weekly, monthly offerings and what you're providing uh, in this space? Yeah, sure. So I am the lead, lead science writer at 538, which is a data journalism site. Um, I also, I should mention, I'm about to launch a new podcast, which is not about running or sports. It's called Emerging Form, and it is about the creative process. I think that a lot of the topics that we've talked about are relevant. Um, one of the episodes in the first season is about talent and sort of this question of, um, is it possible to get by without talent? Can you make up for a lack of talent with hard work? Questions I think like I'm that. an example of that. Yeah. I mean, shoot. Right? I mean, I, if, no one's less talented than me, Christy. So I mean, <laughs> I'd be happy to come on and be the, be the before and the before and after comparison. I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, everyone needs to read this book, whether you're an athlete or not, but especially if you're listening to this, you are an athlete. So thank you so much for writing it. I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Christy, for coming on the show. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Again, good to go with the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. There's a lot more in this book than we covered today, and you're definitely going to want to check it out. Also, thank you to Mercury Mile, Megaton Coffee, and Lowell Running for sponsoring the show. I hope you have a great day and happy running.